The image of John Brown kissing a black baby on his way to the scaffold is a familiar one. In the years after the Civil War, many people believed the incident actually had taken place, although the truth about the story was never far from the surface. It goes without saying that by now we know that John Brown did not kiss a black baby on the day of his execution. But it's quite another question as to whether John Brown may actually have kissed a black baby while he was a prisoner in Charlestown. And while this is perhaps a small matter, it's most interesting because, as we all know, sometimes legends conceal significant evidence or significant facts about the past. And in this case, I think we're going to find that there is something interesting about the story of John Brown's black baby kiss. And that's what we're taking up today for perhaps the greatest in-depth analysis since 1859. From New York City, this is Louis A. Carroll Jr., and this is John Brown Today. The apocryphal incident of John Brown kissing the black baby on his way to the gallows was originally reported in the New York Daily Tribune shortly after his hanging in December 1859 and made a great impact in the news of the day. It was then portrayed in a popular poem, then in a number of paintings which further stylized and glorified the story for popular culture. However, by the late 19th century, it was widely known that nothing of this nature had taken place on the day of Brown's execution. In fact, the condemned abolitionist exited the jail under heavy guard, and there were none but armed men surrounding him as he stepped up into the wagon that carried him to the place of execution. Indeed, there were few civilians on the street that day, since Charlestown was heavily populated with Virginia militia by December 2nd, the day of Brown's death, and slave people were particularly out of sight, and, quote, no Negro could get access to him, end quote as the Virginia state prosecutor Andrew Hunter later put it. Certainly, no black woman with a babe in arms would have been permitted near the jail. Along with the precluding circumstances, it's also a matter of testimony of the jailer, John Avis, that no such incident took place. Yet these facts alone did not put the story to rest, because subsequent information revealed that required revision of the account, although in something of a historical twist. In 1961, researcher Cecil D. Eby wrote, quote, It now seems probable that John Brown did kiss a child on the morning of December 2nd, but the child was white, not Negro, end quote. According to Eby, a letter had been uncovered in the archives of Cornell University from a newspaper editor, Charles Fulton, of the Baltimore American. Fulton stated, that as he left the jail for the place of execution, Brown actually stopped to kiss the child of the jailer, John Avis, whose wife stood by, holding her young son in her arms as he passed through the corridor to exit for the last time. Although Avis later verified that Brown had kissed no black baby on the way to his death, he had never revealed that the abolitionist had kissed his own child before leaving the jailhouse. E.B. further explained that Avis was not eager to publicize the friendly relationship which had existed between Brown and his own family. Now, certainly Avis did not mention the parting kiss in his affidavit, and the family secret was hermetically kept, according to E.B. He concluded that apart from Fulton's letter, which was dated only 12 days after the execution, there had been no leak in the story, end quote. 
Now, Fulton's letter is extant, and it remains in the Cornell University archives, dated December 14, 1859. It is addressed to the Philadelphia abolitionist James Miller McKim, which may partly explain how it ended up in the notable Samuel May anti-slavery collection at Cornell. Fulton writes, quote, Dr. Augustus Rawlings of Frank Leslie's Illustrated News told me that Captain Brown had stopped on his way to the wagon to kiss a black child in a woman's arms, end quote. In the following line, which was later crossed out perhaps to protect the author, Fulton wrote that he did not mention it in his own report because he came to distrust Rawlings' statements. He continued, quote, I've been told since, however, that the incident occurred inside of the jail as he was passing through the corridor with his arms pinioned that a woman of Captain Avis's family with a child in her arms, which child had frequently been in his cell, was standing to see him pass, that he stopped and bid her farewell and kiss the child, end quote. Fulton added that according to Avis, Brown preferred a, quote, poor weeping slave mother with her children to escort him to the gallows and refuse to have any ministers present. Indeed, apparently Brown went so far as to request such an escort to the gallows. Quote, I have asked to be spared from having any mock or hypocritical prayers made over me when I am publicly murdered, Brown wrote to a friend and that my only religious attendants be poor, little, dirty, ragged, bareheaded, and barefooted slave boys and girls led by some old gray-headed slave mother, End quote. Fulton, who was a journalist for the Baltimore American as well as an agent of the Associated Press of the United States, actually had sent a request to Governor Henry Wise of Virginia by telegraph on the day before Brown's execution, asking the right to be present in the jail. Wise promptly refused his request, which explains further why Fulton was dependent on secondhand information when it came to this incident. In the 20th century, then, Cecil Eby and John Brown aficionado Boyd B. Stutler thus concluded that Fulton's letter had brought final clarity to the story of the famous incident. John Brown may not have kissed a black child on his way to the scaffold, but he had kissed jailer Avis's little boy before exiting the jail. Yet, a half century later, it seems that the story of John Brown and the baby kiss must be revisited once more, with further and perhaps even surprising conclusions. It remains historically incontrovertible that John Brown kissed no black baby on the day of his execution. Likewise, it is sufficiently proven that Brown kissed a child inside the jailhouse and that the child kissed was from the jailer's family. When E.B., along with Stutler, worked out their ideas concerning the latter, the conclusion was drawn that the baby kissed was Edward Avis, who was about two years old at the time of Brown's hanging. As E.B. explained, the reason this went without notice was because Avis probably was hesitant to let it be known that his notorious prisoner had established a level of trust with him and his family, particularly since their residence actually was under the same roof as the jail. As Fulton had observed, the child kissed had frequently visited Brown's jail cell, a statement supported by a report dating from the end of October in the New York Tribune, stating that Brown, quote, occasionally played with the little children of the jailer who were present during interviews with visitors to his jail cell. The Charlestown jail at the time was, in the words of the Tribune journalist, a meek-looking edifice that formerly was a respectable private residence. With two front stairways and entrances, the converted rectangular structure gave the appearance of being two combined residences. 
inside the larger west side of the building served as the jail, which was separated from the smaller east side of the building by a corridor where the main entrance was located. The jailer and his family had rooms on the same east side of the building behind a vestibule or reception room. The dividing corridor ran from the front entrance to the backyard, with the jail segment of the yard being enclosed by a wall about 12 feet in height. Inside the structure, the jail had rooms converted to cells on the first and second floors, including barred windows. Brown and the wounded raider Aaron Stevens were incarcerated on the first floor in the same cell across the corridor on the west side of the building, which in small part explains the access that the Avis children had to the cell. Notwithstanding the close proximity of the prisoner's cells to the Avis residence, a great deal more is needed to explain the fact that Avis ever allowed his children to mix with Brown and Stevens and the other Harpers Ferry Raiders who were incarcerated on the first and second floors of the jail. Undoubtedly, the jailer had quickly discerned that Brown and his men were uncommon prisoners despite their desperate actions at Harper's Ferry. While the doomed abolitionist leader was surrounded by hostility in Charlestown, a few people became quietly sympathetic toward him, typically those who had some measure of personal contact with him and his men throughout their incarceration. Foremost among them was John Avis, the deputy sheriff and jailer. While never openly stating his admiration for Brown, even later in life, Avis had treated his prisoner with kindness and consideration in a manner that may suggest his own inner tensions as a pro-slavery Virginian. Edward H. House, the undercover correspondent for the despised New York Tribune, noted early in November that Avis felt, quote, his heart warming to Brown every day and was, quote, deeply impressed with Brown's heroic fortitude in his captivity, end quote. So great was his growing admiration for Brown that Avis was increasingly subject to criticism and hostility from those who resented his honest partiality. The following week, House wrote, Brown's jailer is a humane and just man. He does all for his prisoners that his duty allows him to. I think he has a sincere respect for Brown's undaunted fortitude and fearlessness. House correctly observed that Avis himself first had encountered Brown and his men as an officer in a company of his townsmen who went down to fight them at Harper's Ferry. As Captain John Avis, he had formed a company of 20 volunteers who fought Brown's men from behind the Harper's Ferry arsenal, forcing them to take cover in the armory engine house where they made their last stand. Quote, the jailer in whose charge I am and his family and assistants have all been most kind, Brown wrote to an associate in mid-November during his imprisonment. Nor was Brown surprised that his kindly jailer was, quote, one of the bravest of his opponents at Harper's Ferry. So far as my observation goes, Brown wrote, none but brave men are likely to be humane to a fallen foe. Cowards prove their courage by their ferocity, end quote. Yet if the jailer and his prisoner were mutual admirers in regard to bravery and humanity, they were still opponents. Interestingly, Avis does not appear in the 1860 slave census for Jefferson County as a slaveholder, and it's doubtful that Brown would have expressed such admiration for him had he been a radical pro-slavery man. On the other hand, only a few months prior to the Harper's Ferry raid, Avis had acted as an agent for a gentleman who wanted to purchase 50 black people for his plantation further in the South. The Charlestown Jail was also the site where enslaved people were kept 
after being sold in preparation for being shipped deeper into the South. So it may be that Avis's deplorable role as an agent for slave sales may have come with his job as deputy sheriff. Still, his willingness to participate in the slave system makes it clear that Avis was not an anti-slavery man in any sense. By 1869, Avis had become a Republican, but at the time of the rebellion of the slave states in 1861, he sided with the Confederacy, even serving as a captain and as provost marshal under Robert E. Lee at Staunton, Virginia. Yet Avis may have felt the force of Brown's argument at some level. When one visitor from the North was able to see him, Brown told her that even in his jail cell, he had continued to speak against slavery. Why, I preach against it all the time, he said. Then, turning to the jailer, who was keeping watch from the edge of the room, Brown added, Captain Avis knows I do. This brought an interesting response from Avis, who smiled, affirming Brown with an immediate yes. The same visitor afterward wrote that, quote, a most friendly feeling, end quote, had grown between the prisoner and his jailer, and that Avis, who is, quote, too brave to be afraid to be kind, end quote, had done all he could for Brown and his men, even to the point of being cursed by resentful townsmen. There may yet be more personal reasons for Avis's growing sympathy and compassion toward Brown and his men. Probably the case that Brown's personal piety and example won the admiration of his jailer. In particular, Brown was an inmate steeped in daily prayer and the reading of the Bible, and he conveyed an uncharacteristically agreeable and thoughtful manner toward his captors. He was a pleasant prisoner and never gave us any trouble, recalled one of the jail guards who lived to acknowledge that Brown was indeed a man of truth. Avis consistently observed Brown's conduct, piety, and integrity as a prisoner, including the fact that Brown had given in his word that he would not try to escape. At times, the Avis family probably heard Brown and Stevens, the latter being from a musical family, singing hymns in their jail cell, and had even seen them at prayer in the cell, the old chieftain leading in sacred supplication. It may be, too, that Brown and Avis recognized some things in common, particularly that Avis, like Brown, seems to have been a widower. According to the 1850 census, Avis previously had made a living as a shoemaker, a profession that Brown knew a little about since it had been one of the earliest professions of his father, Owen Brown. More interestingly, in 1850, the 32-year-old John Avis was married to a young wife named Imogene, with whom he had three boys, six-year-old James, three-year-old John, and six-month-old Braxton. A decade later, the census shows that Avis was already remarried and had added two more children to his household, three-year-old Edward and a baby girl, one-year-old. Assuming that Avis's first wife was dead, then they both knew the experience of having been widowed and rearing children from two marriages. What makes this all the more interesting is that both Johns, Brown, and Avis had remarried women named Mary. Furthermore, by the time of Brown's incarceration, Mary Avis had given birth to baby Mary in recent months. Given the dynamics of trust and friendship that were engendered between Brown and his jailer, it's likely that Mary Avis had also accompanied her husband and the children at times to visit Brown in his jail cell across the corridor from their residence. It's also quite likely that Brown was even more charming to the jailer's children than he was to Avis. Quote, he loved children, one of his greatest supporters later wrote, and they loved him. In fact, one journalist found Brown in the home of a Massachusetts anti-slavery leader and the man's children climbing over Brown's knees. 
Brown only looked at the journalist and said, The children always come to me. Very likely, then, Brown had come to know all of the Avis family and had entertained 11-year-old Braxton and his 3-year-old half-brother Edward and likely had opportunity to have held baby Mary in his arms. Indeed, since E.B. and Stutler seemed to have been unaware of baby Mary, it may very well be that it was little Mary who was actually kissed by Brown on his way to the scaffold. Yet the tale of the baby kiss is not yet complete. For as I've noted, it's one thing to say with certainty that Brown kissed no black baby on the day of his hanging. But it's quite another to say that he never kissed a black baby during his incarceration in Virginia. Lawrence McClay Colfelt, 1849-1932, was a prominent Presbyterian minister who followed the tradition of many Protestant clergymen by writing his own memoir, which was published in 1927. After graduation from Jefferson College in 1869, Colfelt recalled, he had spent some time in Winchester, Virginia, where he recalled seeing many prominent figures from that state's antebellum and Civil War era, including Senator James Mason, Judge Richard Parker, who had presided over Brown's trial, and Andrew Hunter, the Virginia state prosecutor in Brown's trial. In fact, during a visit to Charlestown, Colfelt recalled, quote, a conversation of almost an entire morning in the Little Inn, end quote, with Andrew Hunter, whom he describes in some detail, including the interesting note that Hunter was like a walking thesaurus of information in regard to apples, which was something of a hobby to him. Colfelt, however, sought to bring him back as much as possible to the John Brown trial. As he recalled, Hunter made a couple of interesting observations, the first being that he felt that the blacks in Virginia in the time of Brown's raid, quote, were far more rapidly informed than the whites as to the happenings at Harper's Ferry, that's a quote, and that, quote, all over Virginia, they were in a fever of excitement over Brown's presence. More importantly, Hunter, quote, related that as John Brown was conveyed from the jail to the courthouse in passing a colored woman in the double line of spectators, it stooped down and kissed the babe she was carrying in her arms, end quote. This is a unique and dramatic recollection, and it should not be dismissed as fabrication. Colfelt's testimony is substantial, and the placement and expression of the reminiscence is part of a vivid recollection that was both memorable and important to him as one who was a youth at the time of the Civil War. Second, the details he provides in describing Hunter likewise reflect an authentic interview, including the unusual biographical description of the Virginia's attorney and his love for palmology, quote. Colfelt was not writing with an agenda to advance the John Brown legend, but he reflects upon his own youthful interest in the subject, which at the time was still of recent occurrence. Third, as Hunter relayed his account of Brown kissing a black baby, it is significantly different from the legend that was put forth in the New York Tribune and subsequently embellished in popular culture. As such, it requires consideration as an actual event recalled by an eyewitness, or at least recalled by one to whom it was reported at the time. Now, this is important, not only because Hunter was a major figure in the Charlestown episode and would have been present as Brown went back and forth between the jail and the courthouse, but also because the Virginian was never converted to John Brown admiration in later years, and he would have had no interest in salvaging the legend by fabricating another version. Based on the text, the dating of Colfelt's conversation with Hunter in Charlestown 
is not precise, although he includes it in the segment of his post-college stay in Virginia in 1869. This would make him about 20 years old at the time of his meeting Hunter and the Harper's Ferry raid only a decade prior. Perhaps Hunter explained the context of Brown kissing the black child in response to a question by Colfelt, especially because the baby kiss legend was still quite prominent at that time. Regardless, the testimony of Hunter, as reported by the Reverend Colfelt, demands reconsideration of what has long been dismissed entirely as a journalistic contrivance. Not only must the incident described by Hunter be considered in its own context, but also it will both correct and clarify our understanding of the formation of the legend. Assuming the reliability of the source, then, the incident took place not when Brown was on his way to the scaffold on December 2nd, but rather at some point during his incarceration and trial in Charlestown, which would be somewhere between October 25th and November 2nd, 1859. Hunter told Colfelt that Brown stopped and kissed the black child whose mother stood among the double line of spectators, those were his words, as the old man was moving from the jail to the courthouse. The brief description is substantive. First, the double line indicates that there was a string of guards on either side of Brown, and this formed a path through which he and the prisoners walked across the main thoroughfare into the courthouse. According to another source, just before the proceedings at court began, quote, a double file of soldiers marched from within the jail and took their positions on each side of the path leading from the jail to the courtroom. Along this path and between these soldiers, Brown and his associates were escorted in charge of Sheriff Campbell, John Avis, the jailer, and an armed guard, end quote. Immediately behind the guards, curious townspeople, and onlookers probably flocked together, eyeballing the northern abolitionist who had been taken at Harper's Ferry. The scene, as briefly described by Hunter, makes perfect sense, except that it more likely took place early in Brown's presence in Charlestown. One reason why the legendary baby kiss story could not have taken place is that by the time of Brown's execution, Charlestown had become saturated with a military presence so profound as to overwhelm even the townsmen. As a result of Governor Wise's precautions in regard to a threatened rescue attempt, the town was steadily turned into a virtual camp of war where martial law and the overcrowding presence of armed men had become more than an imposition upon the little town. On the day of Brown's execution, the public was warned to stay indoors, enslaved people were proscribed from moving about, and no citizens would have been permitted near the jail, particularly when Brown exited to face the gallows. The scene described by Hunter to Colfelt is quite different and probably took place at the onset of his trial, perhaps on October 25th, the day of his preliminary examination. At this point, John Brown was under substantial guard, but not in a manner that was mounted following his trial, as both the leaders and people of Virginia became increasingly fearful of an attack by Brown's northern allies. And perhaps I should add, they may actually have been afraid of a slave uprising. At any rate, that an enslaved woman might stand along the lines of soldiers to catch a glimpse of Brown is no surprise since the local black community was well apprised of Brown and intensely curious about anything they could learn about his case and condition. While even the abolitionist press was aware that Brown had kissed no baby on his way to the scaffold, there seems to have been a layer of information beyond the reach of distant editors. After Brown's execution, both the National Anti-Slavery Standard and the Liberator 
published small notices of the fact that Brown's baby kiss had taken place inside the Charlestown jail, although they seem to be unclear that the baby kissed was not black. So readers may simply have assumed that the old man had kissed a black baby within the jailhouse. In 1885, the black baby kiss was revisited in an interesting piece in the New York Sun, in which the origin of the legend was discussed. The article suggested a number of possible sources, all of them connected to the New York Tribune. The first was the alleged claim by the Tribune's undercover journalist Edward House that he had invented the story. The second was that the story was contrived by Henry Steele Olcott, another clandestine Tribune journalist. And the last was that Edward Underhill, a Tribune editor in New York, had inserted the scene within the Tribune's reporting of Brown's execution. Supposedly, Underhill did so based upon an interview with James Miller McKim and Mary Brown in New York. McKim, his wife, and Hector Tyndall, all Philadelphia anti-slavery people, escorted Mary as far as Harper's Ferry and waited for her to return from Charlestown just before the execution. While waiting, McKim stated that he had heard secondhand about an incident in Charlestown where Brown had kissed a black child. McKim could not prove the incident had taken place, quote, but thought it might be true and probably was true as it would be characteristic of John Brown, end quote. According to the later claim, Underhill sought to preserve this intensely dramatic incident of a black baby kiss, believing as he did, along with McKim, that it had happened to Brown as he was exiting the jail for the gallows. In the 20th century, Boyd Stutler was well acquainted with the evidence and concluded that the story of the black baby kiss probably was invented by Olcott, who had managed to cover the execution of Brown for the Tribune while posing as a member of the Richmond Greys, one of the militia groups present at the hanging. Quote, he had more opportunity to gather local gossip and minor incidents, Stutler reasoned. From his reports, he seems to have been able to move freely and to talk with whomever he chose, end quote. Stutler was not only the foremost researcher on John Brown, but also a seasoned journalist and doubtless a master of the available documentation on this subject. His belief that Olcott was the more likely author of the Black Baby Kiss story may be preferred over the other views, although even Stutler had to admit that the exact truth about the matter will never be known, end quote. On the other hand, the case can be made that it was really the work of the brave journalist Edward House, who had finally bailed out of Charlestown immediately after Brown was executed, particularly when things had gotten so hot that he was nearly discovered as the undercover reporter for the Tribune. House returned to New York City via Baltimore, where he undoubtedly interviewed many journalists and citizens with information on the goings-on in Charlestown. Stutler acknowledged that House could have been the author of the story but rejected as baseless the allegation that House had taken credit for inserting the Black Baby Kiss episode into the Tribune's coverage. Even so, a careful reading of the account as it appeared in the Tribune on December 5th suggests an interpolation that more likely represents the work of House than of either Olcott or Underhill. The scene regarding Brown and the Black Baby appears as an interpolation within Olcott's story and arguably breaks the flow of his narrative. Likewise, something of a literary marker, which is, but to return to my narrative, in quotes, seems evident where the original article resumes. Indeed, the episode breaks the narrative at a point where Olcott describes the prohibitions and delimitations enforced against the press including his veiled admission that he had gained his place at the gallows by pretense. 
Immediately after the marker, but to return to my narrative, Olcott's reportage continues with a similar kind of distance eyewitness, noting that Brown was taken to the gallows on a furniture wagon and then proceeds to describe the abolitionist's last ride and comments approaching the place of death. Without the intervening story, which describes Brown in an intimate and admiring manner, as well as the kissing of the black child, the narrative then actually flows more consistently in a disinterested but efficient manner of reporting. Quite in contrast, the inserted episode stands alone as a distinct interpolation in which Brown is described in a prefacing paragraph in terms both intimate and admiring preceding the episode of The Kissing of the Black Child. This is the quote. On leaving the jail, John Brown had on his face an expression of calmness and serenity characteristic of the patriot who is about to die with a living consciousness that he's laying down his life for the good of his fellow creatures. His face was even joyous, and a forgiving smile rested upon his lips. His was the lightest heart among friend or foe in the whole of Charlestown that day, and not a word was spoken that was not an intuitive appreciation of his manly courage. Firmly and with elastic step he moved forward, no flinching of a coward's heart there. He stood in the midst of that organized mob from whose despotic hearts petty tyranny seemed for the nonce eliminated by the admiration they had once beholding a man. For John Brown was there every inch a man. While this portion seems part of the interpolation, typically students of the baby kiss legend have overlooked it. As such, most likely it reflects Edward House's undercover reporting, his own recollections, personal and studied as an observation of Brown after having spent weeks in Charlestown, even interviewing the prisoner in his jail cell. This description, while trimmed in heroic language, is consistent with the attitude and conduct of Brown during his incarceration, as well as his written expressions and correspondence. It's quite consistent with how House elsewhere described Brown throughout his incarceration. So while House probably saw Brown emerge from the jail for the last time on December 2nd, he attributed features to the episode that were reflective of the entire manner of his conduct as a prisoner. Likewise, the reference to Brown being surrounded by an organized mob, in quotes, with despotic hearts of petty tyranny, are all consistent with House's observations in his overall Tribune coverage. Thus, his reporting makes clear that both officials as well as civilians in Charlestown had severely criticized Jailer Avis for showing kindness to his prisoners and that they had incessantly complained about or sought to prevent whatever kindnesses might be shown to John Brown, including the denial of what would have been a rare and historic daguerreotype being made of the old man in his jail cell. And so the interpolation, this baby kiss incident, continues, quote, as he stepped out of the door, a black woman, with her little child in arms, stood near his way. The twain were of the despised race, for whose emancipation and elevation to the dignity of children of God he was about to lay down his life. His thoughts at that moment none can know except as his acts interpret them. He stopped for a moment in his course, stooped over, and with tenderness of one whose love is as broad as the brotherhood of man, kissed it affectionately. That mother will be proud of that mark of distinction for her offspring, and someday when, over the ashes of John Brown, the Temple of Virginia Liberty is reared, she may join in the joyful song of praise, which on that soil will do justice to his memory. 
So notice that the description provided within this episode, this interpolated story of the baby kiss, could easily support the Hunter Colfell description of Brown kissing a child at some point during his trial. Furthermore, regardless of authorship, it reflects the same possibility as to the story's actual origin, namely that prior to his hanging, there already was knowledge of Brown having openly kissed a black child in Charlestown, and that this information belatedly came to be known by a Tribune affiliate. In other words, whoever inserted the incident into the account of Brown's execution neither fabricated a tale nor made a false appropriation of Brown having kissed the child of John Avis. Rather, the author of the Black Baby Kiss story drew upon an account already known by many in Charlestown, very likely the same account relayed by Andrew Hunter to Lawrence Colfelt in 1869. Likewise, this would explain what both Fulton had heard from Rawlings and what Underhill claimed to have heard from McKim, just as it would better account for what either House or Olcott might have learned while covering the incidents surrounding Brown's execution. Although the specifics of the baby kiss will never be completely known, it's no longer possible to dismiss completely the account of John Brown having kissed a black child. The testimony of the incident coming from a notable source like Andrew Hunter and through a reliable medium like Lawrence Colfelt has restored an episode that otherwise would have been lost to history. Boyd Stutler naturally assumed that the story of the black baby kiss, quote, had a basis, in fact, in Brown having kissed Jailer Avis's child. It required but little imagination, he concluded, to change the jailer's child to a slave child and to transfer the scene from the jail corridor to the street, end quote. But this not only assumes that what had happened inside the jail was almost immediately known by the author of the baby kiss account, but that the journalist deliberately lied about it. To the contrary, and I rarely disagree with Stutler in terms of evidence, the basis in fact for the legend of the black baby kiss was far more likely an actual spontaneous encounter between John Brown and a black woman with her young child. This incident was still alive in the conversation of journalists or eyewitnesses at the time of the hanging, but in popular telling had lost precision of detail. It's understandable that a journalist, upon hearing of this episode by word of mouth at the last minute, would find it substantial enough to insert into the narrative of the final moments of Brown's life. It was, after all, sufficiently true, and what John Brown had actually done earlier in kissing a slave child might just as well have been done on his way to the gallows. Now, who the black woman may have been is beyond the record of history as well, although the question naturally arises whether other enslaved people were likewise nearby. If not, was the presence of this black woman and her child near the courthouse of any significance? Was she the slave of an important townsman, perhaps? Maybe someone involved in Brown's trial? Well, according to the 1860 slave schedule for Charleston, at the time of Brown's incarceration, there were about 23 black children between the ages of one and five years. Any one of these young children might have been the one held in a mother's arms and kissed by the old man in passing between the jail and the courthouse. However, one young child presents an alluring historical possibility. Imagine, if you will, an attractive mulatress, a mixed-race woman, about 29 years of age, holding her baby boy as she moves along the street toward the Charlestown Courthouse. Now, she's known in the small community, and she walks freely among the whites that have begun to throng the guards who are now stretched in two lines across the main thoroughfare. 
knowing that her master, Mayor Thomas C. Green, had been unhappily appointed as one of John Brown's defense attorneys. She takes advantage of her status and also approaches the line of guards near the courthouse without hindrance. Suddenly, she looks across the street and sees the old man coming down the short stairway of the jailhouse, escorted by Sheriff Campbell and walking feebly in her direction along a human path of armed men. In quiet salutation, she holds up the little one in her arms, just as Brown is about to pass by, and in a moment, their eyes meet. The old man glances at the infant, but there are no words spoken. Suddenly, he bends over and kisses the baby, and then passes into the courthouse. The tender episode happens quickly. The woman recedes into the crowd, and there are no reporters to capture the moment. Yet, Report of the baby kiss spreads by word of mouth, mostly despised by the Virginians telling the story. However, the incident is finally captured by a Tribune journalist and reframed as part of Brown's last hour. Saved from extinction, the story is rendered a legend. Notwithstanding some studied speculation about the identity of the woman and her infant, there's no reason to doubt that John Brown actually kissed a black child on the streets of Charlestown during the process of his trial, perhaps in October 1859. Yet it would be one of the great ironies of the antebellum era if the mayor of Charlestown were not only the old man's unwilling erstwhile defense attorney, but also the sire of the actual child forever enshrined in the legend of the black baby kiss. In fact, according to the slave schedule for 1860, Mayor Green held four people in slavery, including a young woman and her young child, described as one and a half years, along with a 15-year-old mulatto and a 12-year-old female mulatto. Even more interesting is that this young woman, Possibly the mother of the baby kissed by John Brown seems to have run away sometime after Brown was executed, and many local enslaved people did in fact flee Jefferson County. So she and two other slaves, slaves of Mayor Thomas Green, are marked as fugitives in the 1860 census. So maybe it was quite a kiss after all, wouldn't you agree? From New York City, this has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this was John Brown Today.